There it is. Hi. Hi, everybody. How are y'all? <laughs> y'all okay tonight? All right. Good. Good to see you. Glad you're here. How many came expecting something great from God tonight? Amen. How many believe that we can talk about communication and God can do something great in your life? Amen. Amen. Uh, we're excited to be here. Uh, it's been a busy week for us. We've had board meetings this week and uh, a lot of stuff going on, but uh, delighted to be here and and have this evening with you, and we're going to be talking about some interesting stuff. And I'm going to give you 94 verses tonight. We're going to edit that to 93 and give you a pass on two of those. So, uh, no, not really. Uh, I am uh, thrilled to be joined by uh, Dr. Landon Galloway. Uh, some of you have met Landon before. Uh, Landon is our director of education. He, uh, he's been a full-time doing that now for 12, maybe 13 years, 12, 13 years, and so... Uh, oversees all of our educational divisions, and uh, you know we have about uh, 200 interns that are studying in, in various churches around the country, and and so uh, Landon uh, works and manages all of that, and working with the faculty, our, all all of our instructors are terminally degreed and and uh, very capable, and Landon serves as a tremendous supervisor. He also pastors a great church, a large. Uh, he's a campus pastor of a large mega church in Houston. And so about five years ago, uh, six years ago, uh, the, the lead pastor called me and said, we really need somebody to take this campus to the next level and any ideas, and I had one. And uh, I said, the only thing is we can't spare him, so if you, if you get him, we'll have to share him. And so they agreed, and he and his wife, uh, Sarada, and their lovely girls, Vanna and Zara, are rocking it out on the west edge of Houston and uh, just finished his Ph.D. He's a little brainiac, and uh, we're really proud of him. And, uh, and so be sure and say hello to him uh, while he's here. So I actually have a, a handout uh, for you all in the back of my pickup truck, and I drove the SUV. And so, uh, so we will try to get those to you uh, before long, sometime while you're in this study, well, we'll, we'll get those to you, but we're going to have fun tonight. Amen. Uh, Joe, uh -oh. how about a little game of catch? <laughs> oh, man. Now you have to take it easy on me. Okay. Anybody, uh, anybody remember when you were a kid playing catch? You know, playing catch is fun if you play with somebody who knows how to play catch. If you play with somebody that doesn't know how to play catch, bad things can happen. You know what I'm saying? Y'all thought I was going to throw the ball way away. No. You know, sometimes they'll throw it way over your head. Anybody ever been part of a frustrating game like that? They'll throw it way over your head, and you're spending more time chasing the ball than you are just enjoying the game of catch. Um, that hurt a little bit. Wow. <laughs> That hurt just a little bit. Just take a little heat off of it. You know. This is just an illustration, Joe. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when people, even if they get you the ball, sometimes there's so much heat behind it that it hurts when it gets there. And then sometimes they can't get the ball to you, so they, they put it, and you're having to bend over and stoop. Very good. Communicating is a lot like playing catch. Um, and it's sure a lot more fun to play catch with somebody in the communication game that knows how to play catch. 
If you're not careful, you won't get it to them. They won't receive the ball. If you're too zealous, you'll throw it over their head. Can I get an amen? So let's talk about catch a little bit. I'm going to try over the next few minutes to help you with your throw and your catch in the process of communicating with your spouse. Is that okay? Amen. So open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to read a few verses together. It's kind of like the good old days, Landon, having you here. Landon began uh, after he graduated from Mississippi State uh, with a degree in history. He came and interned with us, and so for a summer, we've had about 15 young men over the years that have traveled with Kath and I. Landon, I think, was number five, maybe, about number five, and uh, we had a blast, honestly. Uh, I, I rode a lot of times in the back asleep, and uh, he and Jared, his sidekick who's pastoring a great church in Mississippi now, were my chauffeurs and helped me and did much more than that. But we had some great theological conversations. Uh, Sometimes I would wake up in cities that I had no idea where I was at or why I was there. Uh, But Landon, one thing, though he is a Ph.D. and brilliant, he's directionally challenged. Uh, He has a problem with that. And so even if you give him good uh, directions and even if the GPS is talking to him, sometimes he'll make the wrong turn. And so it's kind of fun to look at you and see you in the front row uh, after all these years, Landon. All right, chapter number five of the book of Ephesians. Let's begin uh, reading. I'm sorry, chapter number four. Let's begin reading in verse number 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. There was a way of walking that was notorious for those who were amongst the Gentiles, at least from the perspective of the Jews. Uh, People who did not walk wisely, did not walk with understanding, who did not walk in wisdom and and with a rationale to the way they lived, the Jews had this very structured system. They did things a certain way. They they used a certain vernacular, certain language, certain, uh, certain customs that were the guiding post, the law, the Torah, was the the guiding post of their lives. And so Paul writing to this church at Ephesus, who's really he's really writing to a larger uh, selection of of the body of Christ. But as he's writing, he says, I, I don't want to see you walking in the way that the Gentiles walk. And then he defines it for them in the futility of their minds, in the fruitlessness of their minds. In other words, there's a way that seemed right to them, but it wasn't God's way. And consequently, it wasn't a fruitful way. It was a walk, but it wasn't a fruitful walk. He said, don't walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And then he goes on to expand his explanation of that Gentile walk. Every time I read that passage, I always think of the Bangles song. Remember the walk like an Egyptian. Remember that song? Any folks remember that song? Like walk like an Egyptian. Yeah. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. In other words, they're walking, groping in darkness without having an understanding of a proper way to walk. And Paul encourages the church not to be found in that kind of walk, that kind of style. And then he goes on. He says... He just keeps kind of painting the picture for us. 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. In other words, he kind of characterizes this, if I may put the label on it, a selfish walk. A walk of selfishness. A walk that is, is, uh, is kind of typified by, by ignorance and by blindness and a lack of understanding. And they, they haven't tuned into other people's feelings. They're tuned into their own, giving themselves over to lewdness, to work in cleanliness with greediness. He says, you didn't learn that kind of walk from Jesus. He said, that's not the kind of walk that you learned when your heart was changed and your spirit came alive in Jesus Christ. How many believe, you may not be perfect when you get saved, but how many believe there ought to be a change in you when you get saved? Suddenly, things that used to appeal to you, even though they may still appeal, have lost some of their luster. Some of the things that you looked at and walked through and talked about and acted out in your life, suddenly there's a conviction. There's something that rises up in your heart when you do them or see them or go through that that says, this is not right. It's not good for you. It's not. And so Paul is describing that. He said, you didn't learn that from Christ in verse 21. If indeed you've heard him and been taught by him, you might highlight that in your Bible if you have a highlighter or an underline, been taught by Jesus. In other words, walking with Jesus is the equivalent of being taught by Jesus. In other words, you may start walking like an Egyptian when you meet the Lord, but a little ways into the stroll, there's going to begin to be some adjustments in the way that you walk. There's going to be this, some of it's subliminal, maybe some of it is taught, some of it's caught. But there is going to be this, this thing that develops between you and Jesus when you're walking along with Jesus that will begin to adjust the Gentile walk out of you and the godly walk into you. Amen. Amen. That's pretty good. Amen. He says, you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So the suggestion is that walking in error and ignorance can be corrected by walking in truth with Jesus. And then he goes on to explain some. I love how Paul writes because he'll make this broad statement and then he'll categorize it, he'll clarify it, he'll help us in that, that Pharisaic style that he taught in. Notice what he says, that you've been taught the truth is in Jesus. What is the truth? That you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he gives us an admonition. So after that, painting the picture, he says, you walk like a Gentile all those years. Now you've met Jesus. Now your walk should be in the process of transformation as you're being transformed according to the walk of Christ. Because as you walk with him, you notice he walks different than you. And you begin to get in step with Jesus and out of step with yourself. Uh, a walk that had been purely uh, driven by selfish pursuits and ambitions now is being conformed to a selfless love walk of, of Christ. And there is this, this beautiful thing that's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, here's what's going to happen. He says, put away lying. You're going to quit lying when you're walking the Jesus walk. I need a good amen. There wasn't a single amen when I said that. Amen. You're going to quit lying when you walk the Jesus walk. You're going to quit lying to each other. You're going to learn to speak the truth 
with your neighbor, you're going to be you're going to realize that it doesn't you shouldn't lie to each other because if you're one, then you're just lying to yourself. And there is no depth of darkness in dishonesty than when you're not honest with yourself. Can they get it? Amen. Amen. He said, You're going to learn to be angry and not sin in your anger. So it suggests a bit of self-control that you're going to learn from Jesus. You might say, well, my granddad had this incredible temper. Man, he could, whoo, he'd cuss a blue streak. Or, or my grandmother, you know, she did this or whatever. Or it's in my genes and the natural development of my life. All I've known all my life in the Gentile walk that I learned was to live in the extremes and without controls in my life. But there's something about walking with Jesus that causes you to be transformed and your, your controls begin to shift to the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. They're going to learn to be angry and not sin, so you can get agitated and upset, but you don't have to tell everybody what's on your mind, or you don't have to give them a piece of your mind. How many know some people have given so much of their mind away they don't have much left? You better save some of that. You might need it sometime, you know? And so he goes on, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Important verse there, important segment. Because in your Gentile walk, if you're still walking like Gentiles, in your Gentile walk, you open windows of, <clears throat> excuse me, windows of opportunity for the enemy to come into your life. If you're walking like a Gentile in your marriage, there are windows you're opening that allow the enemy access into your home and into your relationship and into your marriage. And learning to walk the Jesus walk will help to close those windows and those opportunities for the enemy to get in and sow discord and cause confusion and hurt and wounds. And You can be upset with each other and a little angry, but you learn not to sin with that. You learn to let the Holy Spirit temper your, your wrath. Can I get an amen? I'm going to get y'all to help me a little bit. Even Yeah. So you're learning to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he goes on. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. What does that mean? That means don't go to bed and go to sleep mad at each other. That's a Gentile walk to do that. That's how Gentiles do. For our purpose, and Landon is the New Testament scholar. He could make it clear. But for our purpose now, the Gentile walk is the godless walk. It's the walk without God inspiration, without God revelation, without God understanding, with God, without God impartation. It's a walk that is godless. When people get angry and stay angry for days, that's a Gentile style of doing things. When, when, when there's a problem and a wound and, and it's not resolved, Paul says, don't let the, the sun go down. Do not let the evening finish until you have reconnected, communed through the problem, fixed the problem how many love, love the, the Jesus walk? Because it's, it's a grace walk, but it's tight, and it's right, and it'll help you if you'll learn to do that. Now, I'd love to tell you that every time that Kath and I have disagreed that we did that, and I guess I could say that there's a little Gentile in us all. But if we're walking the Jesus walk, he's walking that Gentile out of you. And the truth is, at some point, it may take you a couple of days. You know where you're going to come to? The very same place you could have been the very first evening that there was a problem. So why not just cut to the chase? Surrender yourself to the Word of God. Be obedient to God's Word and, and cut to the chase and get right to the moment where you can fix it. And you say, well, I'm mad. I can't do that. Well, that's a Gentile who will be mad and sin in their anger. It's a Christ walk that will... Yeah, that's, thank you, Landon. That's good. 
Let him who stole steal no longer. Now, I'm, I'm not giving you all the scriptures that were in the text, but I'm giving you the heart of the text in this one passage. Let him who stole steal no more. In other words, don't be into dishonest gain in your communication with your... We're going to get to some practical things in just a little bit and pro tips to help you uh, be a better communicator with your spouse. But I always love to start with the Scripture. How many like to build everything we do on the foundation of God's Word? And so he said, if you've been dishonest, conniving, stealing, trying to get your way, trying to... He said, let him who stole... Do not do that anymore, but rather labor. And I understand the context of this passage, but for me tonight, what I'm seeing in relationships, sometimes you can manipulate to get what you want in the relationship, which in a sense is kind of a thievery, isn't it? You can play act to get a response that you want when you not really have your heart in it. Paul says, don't do that. That's a Gentile walk. A, a Christ walk is through sincerity and transparency and openness. And, and we'll, I'm going to give you some things that will help you do that. I just wanted to set this before you tonight. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. What is good that he may have something to give who has a need. And then he goes straight up to the mouth, doesn't he? He says, let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, but what is good for necessary or needed edification. Your, your spouse needs your words and if that need is great, then measure them carefully. What was the end result? That it may impart grace to the hearers. And then a little apostolic wisdom Paul gives us in verse 30. He says, you can walk like you want to walk. You can walk on the edge of a, a breakdown at any moment. You can walk ready to just blow up on somebody. You can walk like a Gentile walks. But you're grieving the Holy Spirit. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And you say, are you sure that that's what he means by that? Well, I kind of am because then he goes on to give us a little clarity, doesn't he? He says, he describes that. What, what does it look like not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption? He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In other words, evil intent. Saying words when you have a a motive to get back, to hurt, to wound, to injure. But on the other hand, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, you know, I'd love to say this is an easy thing, but how many of you were married, and, and, and I'm going to talk on a couple of levels tonight, so some of you may be single, and that's totally okay, <laughs> if you're single and you know it, say amen, <laughs> it's like, it's totally okay. What I'm going to teach you tonight and the, the pro tips I'm going to give you are applicable whether you're single or whether you're married. If you want to build strong relationships, the things that I'm going to say, say to you are going to help you. But how many are using marriage as the illustration or metaphor? How many were married? How, how long were you married before you realized that you didn't speak the same language? A day? A week? A month? You know, because in our experiences, we codify, we, we value and define words differently, though we use the same word, right? 
So a young, uh, a young hormone-driven young man walks up to a girl and he says, I love you. And she hears something and he's saying something else. Though using the same words. So we have to understand in fairness that it takes us a little while to figure out how to speak the language of our spouse. If you were married to someone from a different country and you didn't speak the same language, I actually have heard about a few people doing this. I'm not sure exactly what the attraction would be necessarily that would cause two people from different cultures who did not speak the same language to decide to like give it a try and get married. But it's interesting the different dynamics in your communication style as you kind of process through that, that uh, scenario. I remember back years ago in graduate school, I was doing an internship in Mexico. I don't speak Spanish. A few things, like taco and burrito, and <laughs> I, I wouldn't starve to death, you know, you know but, uh, but I didn't have much of the language. And it's kind of interesting how the style of my communication changed when I didn't think I was being understood. And the more frustrated I became in realizing that I wasn't being understood... You know, I remember one time I was out with a group, got separated from the guide and the team that we were working with, and I was trying to get back to the hotel. And I went into this jewelry store to kind of ask directions, right? So, you know, you, when you feel like you're not being understood, you look for the smartest person you can see, and surely they're going to talk like me. And so I went into this business, and these very well-dressed people were there in this jewelry store, and I, they didn't speak a word of English. And I was trying to describe my hotel, trying to remember the name, trying to figure out. And it's amazing that I slowed down and became very deliberate speaking English. You know, you start, hey, I'm Phil Brassfield. I'm just, a, I'm a tourist over here. I, actually, I didn't go into all the details. They didn't understand me anyway. You know, I, I'd like to get back to my hotel. And, and they're like, they're looking at each other and it's like, and so instead of speaking casually and normally, I said, I'm Philip Brassfield. I, I'm, I'm trying to get back to my hotel. And then when I realized that slowing it down didn't help, I raised my voice. I added some decibels to it. You're not getting it. And so I raised my voice, and I, I said the same thing again that they did not understand, except I said it slow and louder. When they didn't understand that, then the gestures. <laughs> the gestures became part of my communication. And I'm trying to make, you know, I'm trying to demonstrate what, like a hotel in Spanish. Would, would be. And as I thought, I was kind of thinking, that, isn't that kind of funny how it is when we get together in our marriage and we realize we're not speaking the same language? And then we think, okay, you're not getting what I'm saying, so let me slow it down for you. And then we get regret our teeth a little bit, right, and say, here's what I'm trying to say to you. And then when they still don't understand, the decibel levels go up. And now it's not just slow, it's loud. And then after that, we realize they're not understanding. Now suddenly the gestures begin to start. When communication's not taking place and frustration comes, it begins to elevate. Emotions get involved and we move away from the effective 
opportunity to communicate and further away from it. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, this, this is kind of reflected, this wisdom, this wisdom from Ephesians, and this is kind of reflected in the prophet Isaiah's writings in chapter 50, verse 4 and 5. Let me draw your attention to this passage. It's actually speaking of the Messiah, so if you'll allow me to take a little bit out of context, but it, there's a principle embedded that will be okay. It says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. That's what the New King James says. That I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He, no, notice what he said. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. Now, it's not just the tongue. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Let me put that in casual language for you. The Lord has given me the words of somebody who knows what they're talking about and speaks the language of the person they're speaking to. This was speaking of the Messiah and how he would come with such a clear message that it would be a language that would be understood and it would be, it would be powerful. And then that he would have an ear that would be awakened, that he would be able to not only speak but to listen. In another translation, I, I think the, uh, let's see which translation, I pulled the New American Standard Translation. It says it this way, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. How many believe that if you say the right thing at the right time, you can sustain somebody who's at the wit's end in their life? Has there ever been that moment when you've walked into, home, into the home and, and you realize that maybe your spouse has had an incredibly difficult day, a frustrating day? Maybe there's been things gone the wrong way for them. And you have an option at that moment to either speak calm and, and, and security and peace to them. Or you can go in and say, what you been doing all day? Uh, note to self. <laughs> You might want to just strike that from your vocabulary, the question, what have you been doing all day? Just take that out of your vocabulary. The Lord has given me the tongue of his disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as the learned or as a disciple. Notice in this particular phrase, if you've got your highlighter or pen, the word sustained is used. The word sustained. In the Hebrew, it means to hasten, to give help, or to assist, to support. Imagine that the Lord gives you the ability to speak a word that brings rescue, that brings support, that brings encouragement, that brings strength. Instead of a word that brings conflict, instead of a word that strikes a match and throws the gasoline on it at the same time. Come on, anybody said those kinds of words? Instead of that kind of word, the Lord will give you the ability when you're walking with Jesus. The Lord will give you the ability to speak the right word at the right time for the right reason in the right way. And that word that you speak will bring peace and calm to a volatile circumstance or situation. How many know what I'm talking about tonight? Amen. This passage has two dynamics from Isaiah. One deals with the tongue and the other the ear. The idea is communication. Now, this is my introduction. I'll get to these pro tips in a few minutes. But the idea is that the dynamics of communication are largely two, talking and listening. 
Has anybody ever been in that conversation? Don't raise your hand. Has anybody ever been in that conversation when you realize there was a lot of talking going on? There just wasn't much listening going on. There was a lot of things being said, but there wasn't anything being learned. Uh, there was a lot of information going back and forth, but there was no communication happened. How did, the Scripture says, how did the Lord give me those words? He taught me. In other words, it was a learned language. Paul would say it this way, it is a walk that is a Christ walk and not a Gentile walk. And how did you learn it? Jesus taught you. Through his word, by his Holy Spirit, through the heart of conviction in your life, that still small voice. Jesus wants to be our teacher. Some of us think this is hopeless, Lord, for us to ever have the ability to communicate. But if both parties will go to Jesus and say, Lord, give me the tongue of the learned. Let me say what you want me to say. Let me have the ears of the learned so that I can hear something from you that will give life. And then I share it in a way that it will give life. He taught me as a disciple. In other words, I learned to speak the right words at the right time in the right way. There is an art to communication, ladies and gentlemen. And we must learn to speak effectively and listen intently with interest and sincerity if we're going to learn the language of Christ. So I guess the question that I have to set before you, if you were my class and I would bring you to this point in our lesson, I would probably set the question before you. You can continue to speak to each other as you have, seasoned and salted with a lot of Gentile vernacular, or you can learn the language of the Lord and your relationship be healed through your communication. But the decision and the choice is yours. And you're going to make it not in the peaceful, wonderful moments when everybody's feeling great and everything's going good. You're going to learn it in the hot-tempered moments where everybody is on edge and fuses are short. And you have to decide whether or not you're going to talk like a Gentile or you're going to talk like Jesus. I just want to pause and kind of pat my own self on the back because it's like, that's pretty good right there. That whole, that's, how many believe God's word is good? Amen. Anybody believe God's word's good? Amen. It's good. All right. So that's my biblical part of the lesson for tonight, the foundation from which we will talk. So what have we seen tonight? Well, you've seen a cool object lesson about play and catch and the admonishment to, to study the game so that you learn how to throw the ball. Make sure you're not throwing it over their head, not, not throwing it 20 feet ahead of them. Make sure that it's a pleasurable game and there's not more work chasing the ball than just the enjoyment and the rhythm of throwing the ball back and forth. I, I wished I had time. I could talk about things that get in the way of the ball. And how we go through things and we carry baggage into that moment of communication. And it's not that we don't want to throw the ball and it's not that we don't want to catch it. There's stuff in the way that's got to be moved. But I don't have time to talk about that tonight. So I'll just sow that idea and seed with you. Let me define for you what communication is then. Distilling it down into a simple explanation. Communication is understanding and being understood. Communication is not sharing information. That's a piece of it. Communication is not just listening. That's a big piece of it. But you haven't communicated until you understand and you know that you're being understood. This is what communication is. 
The root word for communicate is commune. It speaks of sharing, of fellowship with others. Communication, then, is the act of relating to others in such a way that a common understanding is achieved. In short, communication is understanding and being understood. But you got to speak. Everybody say, you got to speak. And you got to listen. Yeah. We've all been in that moment where you think, it's just better for me not to say anything. I remember a story I heard a long time ago. It was kind of a funny story about this, this family that wanted to get a rich aunt something really cool for Christmas. I mean, you know, they're, they're a very well-to-do family. They had everything they wanted. And they wanted to get Grandma something that she would really enjoy for Christmas, and she loved pets. And so one of them was traveling in South America and in a pet shop saw a minor bird that could speak like six languages and had a vocabulary of a hundred words. They thought, man, nobody, nobody will think to get grandma a bird like that. That is seriously cool. So they bought the bird. I think they paid like $5,000 for the bird. Went through all the things you had to do to get it brought back to the States. And they sent it to her for Christmas and they, they weren't able to be there, but they sent it to her and didn't hear anything from her. It was like a week, two weeks after Christmas. He thought, well, man, that bird had a, could speak five or six or seven languages and had a vocabulary of 200 words. Grandma hadn't even said anything about it, so they finally called. I said, Grandma, what do you think about the bird? And she said, it was delicious. <laughs> it was really good, honestly. Really enjoyed that bird. <laughs> it was delicious. Yeah. They said, Grandma, you didn't eat the bird. <laughs> yeah, what was I supposed to do <laughs> They said it had a vocabulary of 200 words and could speak seven different languages. It was silent on the other end of the phone for a moment, and Grandma said, you should have said something. <laughs> should have said something, didn't it? There's a moment that you need to speak. <laughs> oh, I'm having fun with y'all are not. <laughs> we all speak and listen through a filter, though. We do. Our filter is furnished with a particular language. I mentioned it. You can speak the same language, but yet be defining uh, and identifying your words in a different way. According to experts, there's a formula for communication. Did you know 55% of what you communicate is nonverbal? 55%. It's through body language. Body language. If, if, if over half of what you're saying... Is through how you're standing or how you're sitting, then it's really dangerous to be really angry and try to communicate. It's really likely that the message is not going to be received. It's really likely that the message is not going to be understood. 55% through nonverbal. 33% is not what we say, but the attitude with which we say it. The tone of our voice, the inflections of our voice. Like my trip to Mexico, frustrating, the voice begins to change. It happens in homes and families all over the world. Only 7% of what you say is actually the words that you use. 7%. 55%. Body language, 33%. Is how we say what we say, and about 7% are the actual words. So what does that teach us? That means if we want to get the right message across, 
we need to be less instinctive and more intentional. In other words, if we have a conversation that, that, that we need to have in a, in a relationship, in our marriage, then we need to take, if it's important enough to have it, it's important enough to think it through before you have it. Make sure that your posture conveys your heart. Make sure that your tone and your attitude conveys your heart. In other words, synchronize what you're going to say with your heart before you act the process of communicating. And you're saying, well, Brother Brassfield, that's not the world I live in, man. I, I just, I'm just kind of fly by the seat of my pants, and, and it's like maybe that's why you're sleeping in different rooms. Sorry, shouldn't have said that. Maybe the happy chance without thought Gentile style of language is why the relationship is struggling. And my intent tonight is to help you bring through your words and your communication healing to your relationship. Amen. Somebody pray for me tonight. Now, there's another part of the process of, of our words and how they are measured. And it has to be filtered through the things. I call them this. And so, again... If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. I will get the notes back to you, and my sincere apologies after we printed 100 for me to leave them in the back of the pickup truck. Somebody didn't get the message. <laughs> uh, it's something that I call three great needs, four great fears. Three great needs, four great fears. And all of our communication is typically filtered through three fundamental needs that every human has on the planet and four things that they are afraid of. So our fears and our needs are like this filter. It's like the background on a computer, but instead it's, at the, it's in the front, not the back. So the words and the things that you do and say are going to be filtered through this thing before they get to the end user. Three great needs, four great fears. Let me give you the three great needs. And here's the thing. If I know what you're afraid of, and I know what you, have, what, you're, what you need, then it gives me great power to build a solid communication relationship with you. How many times have people been in my office, in ministry, coming for marriage counseling, and somebody says, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. I was so busy with the church. I was so busy with ministry. I was so busy with this. Or I was busy with the kids. Or I was busy on the job. And, and I didn't have a clue. I had no idea what she was afraid of. I had no idea what she needed. I had no idea what he was afraid of. I had no idea what he needed. And we were this matter in motion. We were existing together, but we weren't living the abundant life that God, leading in ministry, but not living the abundant life. Knowing how to go through the motions, knowing how to, to do the right things in public, but yet struggling and suffering Privately, because why? We did not know. We did not have the understanding. It was a Gentile style of life. And Paul says, don't do that. Let's just talk about for just a moment those three great needs and four great fears. Every single person on the planet needs affection. Number one is affection. Every single person in this room. I may not know your story. I may not know everything about you. I may not all know all the things that you've gone through or you've experienced. But I know one thing about you. You need affection. Here's the thing, though. 
people interpret affection differently. It's not the same for everybody. But I will tell you what's at the root of affection. Affection is not just hugging and kissing. Affection is to matter. Significance feels like affection. If you want to communicate great affection to your spouse, make sure they know that they matter to you. That they are your first thought, not your last idea. They are the first one that you're thinking about, not the last one that you're thinking about. And here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, about affection. Everyone needs it so bad that they will get it. They they will get it one way or the other. Either you'll give it or they'll find it in something else or someone else. Affection. Everybody say affection. Affection is a fundamental intrinsic need. And without knowing anything about you, I know that you need affection. You need some. It's the ability to ascribe significance and value to someone else is affection. The second great need is acceptance. Acceptance. Why are gangs blowing up in the inner cities? And why are are so much wildness going on where, where groups, tribal groups are forming and coalescing around ideas? Is because there's a craving in the heart of man and woman to be accepted. This is about belonging. It's not enough just to have that moment of you matter. You want to be part of something. You want to, that's, that's the job in a family. That's why God created families in large part. is so that we wouldn't be these isolated individuals that had no interest in the society that God called family. God wanted you not just to live. He wanted you to belong because he knew that you needed that. God wanted to belong and have those that belong to him. The third great need is affirmation. Affirmation. The third great need is affirmation. This is approval. Every person on the planet longs to be approved. Now, the truth is, I could stop right there, and if you took those three things and decided over the next year, I'm going to make it my job number one for my spouse to know that they are incredibly, first and foremost, significant in my life, that they belong to me and I belong to them, and that there is a sense of I'm proud of them and proud of some of the things they've accomplished that probably alone could heal most of the marriage fractures in and around us. It's not rocket science. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not that complicated. With Kath, I know what she needs. She needs affection. And I've taken responsibility. I talked with you about that last time we were here, about taking responsibility for your spouse. Her life, as when we married and we entered covenant, I took responsibility for her and she took responsibility for me. I am her responsibility. She is my responsibility. Do I know that she needs affection? Yes, I do. There's a language that she speaks in a way that she interprets affection. There's a way that I do. It's her job to know that way. It's my job to know her way. And then to take truckloads, y'all, and dump it. On her. You want to divorce proof your marriage? Find out the three fundamental things that your spouse needs and then get truckloads of it. A ridiculous, obscene amount. And you think, I ain't doing it. (laughs) Well, we're going to pray for you. (laughs) 
If you, how many want a great marriage? I think that's why we're here. We're strengthening marriages. That's part of this series here is strengthening marriages. And I just gave you the secret sauce to strengthen your marriage. You may not understand. You may say, man, men are from Mars and whatever the book was. Men are, women are from Venus. I don't know, whatever it is. But the idea is that we're worlds apart. But if you will take the time to figure out what your spouse interprets, how they interpret affection, acceptance, and affirmation, and you serve it up in big portions, they will think that you absolutely are the greatest thing in the world. Everybody say three needs. <laughs> yeah. Have I made anybody mad yet? I hope I haven't made anybody mad, but anyway, I'm not running for anything. <laughs> Three needs four fears because it's not just our needs, it's the things that we're afraid of. Again, I don't have time tonight to, to take this and unpack it all. Back in the day, that's part of what I did. Um, four great fears. The first fear is being out of control. Being out of control. Anybody ever met a control freak? Or maybe even if they weren't like a freak, but just their fundamental fear was being out of control. Let me tell you, everybody in this room has part of that in you. There's a little of that in all of us. Some of us, based on our personality, may be a bit more extreme. As a matter of fact, if, I don't know whether any of you have been exposed. Have any of you been exposed to personality theory or personality studies? How many, like the Briggs and Meyer or... Or the, the golden retriever, the, the, the Trent and Smiley system. How I many the DISC? Anybody ever heard of the DISC model of personality? So the back, and again, I don't have a lot of time, but let me just do it encapsulate. Back in the day, Hippocrates identified that there were four emotions, four temperaments that was, that was present in every person. Later, scientists began who specialize in the study of relationships, communication, and and personality began to identify the fact that there were four basic personality types. Well, back in the day when I taught those, the easiest way to understand a personality type is to know that the expression of the personality is a defense of their greatest fear. So when a person is very dominant and needs to be in control, it's because their fundamental fear is being out of control. We look at them and say, oh, I wish I could be so strong. They're so strong. They dominate the entire environment. They dominate the conversations. They dominate everything. Well, that's not because they're strong. It's because they're incredibly afraid. The intensity of the practice reveals the intensity of the fear that drives it. So one of the fundamental fears is being out of control. In the DISC model, the dominant style personality has a fundamental fear of being out of control. And the reason I would take this little sidestep and, and share it with you is because you understand in every conversation, we are processing the data against the backdrop of those driving fears in our life. The next fear, I said four, the next fear is rejection. Rejection. So the life of the party, the, the Mr. Personality, Ms. Personality has a fear of rejection. And they compensate for that fear by being the life of the party. The extrovert of extroverts. That's a, that's a way that you... And incidentally, let me tell you, I'm not saying any of these are wrong. And the truth is, for society to work, we need all four. 
As a matter of fact, when I get through sharing them, you'll understand that most sitcoms in Hollywood are simply a design of the four personality styles in conflict with each other, and we all laugh at, you know, like Cheers. I mean, remember the show Cheers, or you, you fill in the story, Seinfeld, Friends, whatever your show was, what they do is they take all these personalities, the different extremes, mix them up in a pot, and we watch them do life, and then we laugh our head off at the things that happen between them. It's, it's, the, it's the driving process of society. So don't think that I'm preaching against a person that has a high fear of being, I have a D-style personality, so there is that fundamental fear of being out of control in me. And then I also have an I-style personality, which, and, and typically a person will have two driving that are the most dominant in their life. And so I'm a DI blend on the chart. So that means that I have a fundamental fear of being out of control and rejected, right? So when Kath is talking to me, she has to speak a language that doesn't hit those fear buttons if we're going to have communication. Uh, the, other, the, the, the third one is uh, the losing security. Losing security, a fundamental fear. Anybody in the room that's like, okay, that's me. <laughs> I, I, everything that around me, I always process it through, does it threaten my security? Uh, I think it was a manager that said 70% of every social group view change as loss followed by pain and anguish. Why? Because 70% of every social group are S-style personalities. Their fundamental fear is being out of security, losing security. So when they're inter interacting with D-style, Kath is an SC. I'll get to the C in a minute. And I'm a DI. So I'm a bottom line kind of guy. I can change on a dime, right? It's like, man, I've, I've got all the data. I've got all the information. And bless God, this is what we need to do. But she's listening through a lens. Is, the, is this change that we're going to make going to cause uh, our family to become insecure? Is it going to threaten our security? Are you all in the room with me? Okay. The last fear is criticism. Is criticism. What are the four fundamental fears? Being out of control, feeling rejected or experiencing rejection, losing security, or criticism. Um, for example, this reflects itself in the careers that we choose too, right? Uh, accountants, bookkeepers typically have a fear of criticism that allows them to be extremely good with details. You don't want a D-style personality that's doing your taxes. You don't want to, and, and it's interesting because law, you kind of want a little mix of it, right? It's like I need a tiger in the courtroom and a detail-oriented person. And actually, if you study the career of law, we have a lawyer with us tonight. If you study, often lawyers have a D-C blend. It, it fits them well to be able to do the job that they do. Um, fat, <clears throat> factory, assembly line people. I, 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 listen, before I took the first church that I pastored, I worked at Whirlpool on the assembly line. I made it 49 days. <laughs> Literally, I worked. It was a good job, great benefits, great pay. And I worked 49 days. I might have hurt somebody on that 50th day. I just knew, okay, this needs to end. 50 days, it's 49 days. Here it comes. Here it comes. Click. Click. Ten hours. Click. 
I wanted to jump off a bridge. I just couldn't stand it anymore. It didn't make me evil. It just meant that my personality wasn't suited. But someone who has a strong S-style personality, the repetitive is like, yes, <laughs> yes, I love this. And we do the same thing over and over and over and over again. And they really get into the routine and the repetition. And a lot of times things that tear churches up, right, is making changes. We change the carpet color. The carpet needs to be changed. It's been here 20 years. And somebody says, I just love that color. It was my favorite. I just can't hardly adapt to the change. I'm trying. You know, change is a problem. Why? Because seven out of ten people have an S-style personality. And they view as change as loss followed by pain and anguish. They could hit the lottery and become a millionaire overnight. And you'll see them on TV 30 days later saying we became a millionaire and it ruined our lives. Because it's so hard to navigate the change. So I, I, this is not a class on personality, but it was important that you understand that when I'm talking about having the language of a disciple, a student... That it's not just the words you're saying. It's the way they're being processed through the filter of the fundamental heart needs and the things that cause that person fear. And if you learn that about your spouse, it empowers you to speak a word that's consistent with what Isaiah talked about when the Messiah would come, that he would speak a word that could strengthen the weak and the weary. And he would have an ear that was enlightened, that it could hear and resonate and understand. That's a gift. It's an art. It has to be developed. But it's important that you understand in your spouse situation what are you afraid of? What is, what is your basic personality style? Maybe this is not a personal thing. I've been taking these reactions personally. When it wasn't personal, it was hitting fear buttons. It was hitting things that are the, the, the closest fundamental needs of my life. And when you learn how to do that, that's what I'm talking about. It's not just how to be nice. It's how to say the right thing at the right time in the right way. Our little grandson, I'm going to land the plane, y'all, but our little grandson, when he was little, he, his dad would get him, you know. He'd get in a little trouble and get us paddling or whatever. And, and he was, sometimes he needed it. Matter of fact, sometimes his dad didn't and Papa did. But, you know, it's like, if you're not going to do it, I can do it, you know. And uh, one time we got him, he pulled him out of the high chair and Jonah said, I'll be nice, I'll be nice. He wasn't being nice. And he, he made all kinds of pledges and commitments from the high chair to the bedroom. I promise I'll be nice. So it's not just being nice. It's using your ability to communicate with wisdom and understanding. All right, I promised you pro tips. Let me give you a few pro tips, okay? Everybody say, thank God. Pro tips. All right, let me give them to you quickly. First of all, if you want to communicate, do this first. Seek to understand before you demand to be understood. I define communication as understanding and being understood. But before you demand to be understood, do everything you need to do to clearly understand what your spouse or the people that you're in relationship are saying. It may require you ask questions. What do you mean exactly? Instead of reacting, flash, fire. Say, wait a minute, here's what you said. What, was that? what did you mean? 
Seek to understand before you demand to be understood. Number two, learn to listen. Learn to listen. So the two go together. Back to our original. The tongue of the learned, the ear of the learned. Learn to listen. Seek to understand. Learn to listen. And everybody say this really critical word with me. First. So let's say them together. Listen. First. (laughs) Number three. Before you go into a conversation with your spouse, an important serious conversation, check your attitude and take it to the altar, even if it's a split second. It doesn't, you don't have to pray for two hours. You can pause and say, Holy Spirit, you are my companion. You are my constant comforter. Draw on that Holy Spirit anointing that's inside of you. Holy Spirit, help me to speak your words. Help me to speak wise words, anointed words. Maybe that's how we should say it. Help me to speak anointed words in this. Yeah, we're going to talk about money. Yeah, we're going to talk about kids. Yeah, we're going to talk about intimacy. Yeah, but help me to speak an anointed word in this conversation so that it brings life and sustains and strengthens the hearer. Check your attitude. Remember, 55% of what you say is seen, not heard. So think about, well, how does this conversation need to happen? Maybe a comfortable spot, a non-threatening pose, a, a way of setting where just being aware, cognizant. Some of you are thinking, man, this is too complicated. It's really not. If you'll practice it, if you'll practice it, it will become a second nature to you. Sometimes there are moments when you step into the conversation. Sometimes there are moments that you step back in the conversation. And that step can be the most important paragraphs you say. The next one is kind of kin to that one with attitude. Think before you speak. Let me just say it this way. Be careful. Be careful. People laugh with Kath and I, if you hang around us, you know, it's like, wow, we've been married 25 years, and the staff talk about it sometimes. It's like, we're really careful with each other. After 25 years, we're really careful. She knows I'm a DI blend. We have a real estate business. We do some things besides ministry. We're partners in that. We share adjoining offices at our office, so we're together an awful lot. If we don't learn how to speak to each other, So a lot of times I need her see. I need that attention to detail. I need that stability with that SC style personality so that I don't act and and make a a business decision on the fly that we've not discussed. And she understands that. But instead of making statements to me, this is just a little pro tip secret thing, she asks questions. Very seldom will she say a demonstrative statement to me. In a conversation like that. And it's funny how, hun, this is what we can do. We can, man, this is gonna be great. We're gonna buy this property. It's gonna look like that. And you know, if she said, no, we're not, I'd probably buy it anyway. <laughs> That's kind of how I'm wired. But when she says, okay, so what about this and what about that? Have you thought about that? It changes the whole order of the conversation because I have a high integrity threshold as well in my personality mix. And so she immediately knows that she can sow a thought in my mind that will cause me to say, wait a minute, am I missing something here that you're seeing? I mean, 
Now, communication. It's what professionals call the arena of communication. Now we have entered that sacred place, that arena of communication, where we can really get things done. Because now, instead of attacking each other's fears, we're working within that matrix, within that window of understanding to communicate with each other. Think before you speak. Be careful. Be intentional. Okay. Say what you mean. Say what you mean. Pro tips, say what you mean. Nobody likes to decode secret messages. Say what you mean. Be careful, be deliberate, speak the truth in love. No code, no subliminal messages. The silent treatment don't count. How many knows we've all done that? We have, we have shared an immediate message by just... Okay, don't do it. Look at your neighbor and say, don't do it. If they're the ones that did it, tell them, I forgive you. <laughs> I forgive you. Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I forgive you, but don't do it. No backhanded compliments. Sarcasm is not funny in matters involving the heart. Sarcasm is not funny in matters involving the heart. And then finally, lead with how you feel, not what you think. Your spouse will be more motivated to discuss it with you if you tell them the way that you're feeling, not just what you've decided or the conclusions you have drawn. Okay, so that's that. Um, I think I'm through. Um, And some of you are probably thinking, well, thank God, that'll be about enough of that. Um, Would you like three more little quick secret, like, this is this, the, the golden key that opens the magic lock. And <laughs> All right, let me give you three more, three more. Okay, I'm going to do it quick. Now, we're talking about your posture, okay? The secret, the, the, the position you take. Pride will destroy your relationship. Pride will destroy any relationship. What is pride? It's the inordinate preoccupation with self. It's what pride is. Humble yourself before God and toward your spouse. And then practice these things. Number one, in your relationship, keep a tithing mindset. Keep a tithing mindset in everything, not just money. Tithing is about God being first. First sow and then you reap. It's wrong to expect to reap where you haven't sown. Pay your relationship the tithe that it's due. It's a secret. It's a pro tip. Secret sauce stuff. The tithing principle applies to your relationship as well. Make an investment in your spouse first through carrying deposits and then withdrawals can be made more easily. Number two, there's just three, make yourself a servant to your spouse. Make yourself a servant. Some of you are thinking, well, he'll walk all over me. I understand. Or she'll walk all over me. I get that. And that has to be negotiated out. We're essentially teaching tonight on two spouses whose heart are turned toward Jesus. And they're willing to humble themselves and surrender to the word of God. I understand that many of you think, well, that's not the relationship. That doesn't describe my relationship. I understand that. So there's no condemnation. I'm not trying to heap that. I'm trying to give you some 
quick tools that will help you. Make yourself a servant. In communication, ask first, do I see where he or she's coming from? Do I really understand the way they feel before you proceed deeper in the conversation? And don't go forward until you do. Make yourself a servant in that conversation. And then finally, I've touched on it a little bit. I'll just drill into it one more second. Take responsibility for your spouse. It's, they're your responsibility. They're your responsibility. They're not somebody else's responsibility. They're not somebody on the Internet's responsibility. They're your responsibility. You said I do. You entered into a covenant with them before God. It's your job to know how they feel, what they think, what they need, what they're afraid of, and how you can help them through life by communicating in a language that they understand. Amen. Okay, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, for plowing our hearts, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do a deep work, Lord. Even as I've shared this with them, I, I'm, I'm feeling the furrows being plowed in my own heart. I pray that you will then produce great fruit in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. I will get the notes and bring them. They'll be here Sunday. Sorry about Amen. that. Amen.